Welcome to the Solutions Insider Podcast, brought to you by NCHA Strategic Partners. So I'm here with my guest, Bernadette, Erica, and Christina from HSC. And ladies, I'd really like for you to tell us a little bit about yourselves and then a little bit about the background of HSC. So Bernadette, would you like to go first? Yes, thank you. So happy to be here. I appreciate it. My name is Bernadette Armijo, and I am the Business Relationship Specialist with Hospital Services Corporation. I've been with the organization for coming on five years, and I enjoy working here a lot, and I've learned so much uh, in the time that I've been here. A little bit of a fun fact about me is I'm a movie buff. And I just thought I would throw that in there so that you can get a, get a feel. But um, best and most favorite movie is Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. I don't know. It's just, I loved the idea of that movie. So um, <laughs> that's me. Uh, Christina, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Christina Tyson. I'm the Staff Readiness Services Manager here at HSC. I have a little over 25 years of healthcare experience working um, with a health plan and then transitioning over to a private practice. I worked for an orthopedic surgeon for 11 years and came over to HSC. So I've been here for a little over seven years and um, really enjoyed working here. I love working with the providers, getting the providers credentialed and access um, to our community members. Not quite as a big movie buff as Bernadette, um, but I would say that my favorite movie from the 90s is probably... Um, Memphis Bell. I love history. So I, I, that's, it's a really good movie and I really enjoyed it. So, and I think Erica is not necessarily a movie buff, but I think she's more of a singer. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and Jody is too. So the (laughs) duet will be up for a Grammy in 2025. Absolutely. So I'm Erica Campos, and I'm the president of Hospital Services Corporation that we affectionately call HSC. And I've been in healthcare on the health system and hospital side for about 25 years. And so I joined HSC um, I uh, just about 18 months ago. And so coming up on two years, love this company. We're a best place to work, um, voted that four years in a row by our own employees. So it's a real privilege to lead it. Um, and I came most recently out of the Christus system, which is in New Mexico, Texas, Arkansas, Chile, Mexico, all over the place. Wow. Um, so I, I love healthcare, love hospitals, and happy to be here. So I, I can already tell this is going to be a fun conversation. So thank you again for being here. Bernadette, explain to me a little bit more about what is a credentials verification organization what does a CVO do in a healthcare system? In, in the process of having conversations with a lot of people, I, I actually asked that question myself as I was coming on board and, and finding out the acronyms and what that means. But what I came to find out is I learned that credentialing is really just the process of verifying qualifications, the competency of these healthcare professionals that are going to be seeing patients to ensure that they meet their requirements, that they have all the licensure, that they can practice and safely see patients. Um, And so a CBO is an organization that has the opportunity to do that and can uh, process that and take the steps to ensure that that, um, the person that's seeing the patient is adequate and licensed and it's a safe environment. So that is what I've come to know um, CBO and credentialing for. 
and how that works for us. But Erica, I know she told me a little bit more about it. And it's kind of like background check for the physicians. Well, I, when you're when you're a hospital, you are putting your stamp of approval on the physicians and the providers that are going to work there. And you are telling your patients, this is a good provider. We have done all of our checks. We know that they went to the school they said they did. They got their fellowship done at this amazing university, you know, whatever it might be. Um, this is someone whose hands you can feel safe in and they know how to do what they say they're going to do. And so credentialing is basically doing those checks and verifying um, that the person is who they said they are and that you can trust putting your stamp of approval and your brand of your hospital on that individual. And then Christina does all the details. So she really digs in what credentialing means. Right. So as a CVO, we are bound to regulatory requirements as is medical staff offices. And so we take those uh, regulatory requirements, which are typically joint commission and CQA, triple HC. So whatever entity is accredited by, you know, that particular type of regulatory entity or agency, we combine that with medical staff bylaws. So we get really into the meat of the details of regulatory requirements, bylaw requirements, and we combine those to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the facility to ensure that gaps are not being created. And again, as you know, Bernadette mentioned, that the providers are qualified and competent to, to provide services in, 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 in the hospital system, clinic, you know, clinic-based systems, um, volunteer organizations also, also um, credential their providers just to make sure that those providers are competent and qualified. Right. And I will tell you that, you know, myself coming from a physician practice and having to do this, this, this was one of my least favorite things to do, um, every year, you know, with CMS and then with just, uh, all the different, uh, managed care organizations. Cause we started seeing more of that, um, in the area in which I lived. And at the time, you know, it, that was a, a more popular, you know, uh, HMOs and PPOs and all, all of the, the O's, um, that became more prevalent. And so having to do all the credentialing for those particular, um, organizations, that was a beast within itself and just trying to get all of the things straight with, within those organizations. So I completely get what you're talking about and and totally understand it. So, you know, that brings me to my next question. Um, you know, what does the process of credentialing, what does it typically look like? What's that process entail? Um, and, you know, how have most healthcare systems gone about this type of work? Well, I can take the top part of that. Um, it's a Really, it's about gathering and verifying the information that is given to us based on an application or, or however the, the provider is instructed to provide that information. So like education, training, work history, licensure, board certifications, those kinds of things. And we're really gathering all of those tools, all of that information, and we're wanting to check and make sure that it, it's accurate. So um, Healthcare systems have different varieties um, of how they choose to do that, whether they choose a vendor or they do it in-house, but it's really gathering of information. I think there's so many details involved too. And so um, sometimes it feels, I think on the hospital side, especially like you said, it's you know kind of a beast. It's a lot of details that you're trying to collect and pull together. Um, and it it's like it, it's not that important until it is. 
So, you know, until you find a red flag or until there is a problem or until you're getting your joint commission accreditation, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, it feels like paperwork. Um, And part of what we're trying to do is get all the information up front, really quality level of information, which could be hard for a provider to do. So we work with practice managers and with medical staff leaders as well. Um, And then we have tools that check off some of those things in an automated way. And then we have some that you cannot automate that our staff is really skilled at collecting. So it's, it's easier for them. Um, If you are in a hospital that isn't huge and you don't hire providers that often, it's a really important task that you're doing infrequently. Um, So that's when it's a really good idea uh, to go ahead and use somebody like us because we do it all day long. Right. Um, And then also if you're a medical staff office or you're an area where you just have so many tasks piled on you all the time, um, there again, it's something that has to be done well and right. It's it can be a beast. So we're a good organization to turn to. And Christina might have more details to add to that too. Absolutely. So as Erica mentioned, I think there's a lot of different layers to credentialing. So not just the medical staff and privileging portion of credentialing, but you're also looking at the credentialing piece for licensure. So, you know, providers have to be, um, you know, have their medical licensure for the state that they're applying in. So here in the state of New Mexico, we partner with New Mexico Medical Board to assist with that process and understanding the different requirements for the licensing board versus the different requirements for uh, medical staff or privileging purposes, and really kind of trying to streamline that process. And I think that because there are so many different requirements and so many different layers to credentialing, and then on top of you know privileging, then you have the the, the payer credentialing. Um, so um, you know, as Erica mentioned, outsourcing to somebody like HSC can really help streamline that process because. We're gathering that information up front for the licensing uh, portion of, of the process. And then we're able to apply that to the credentials and privileging process. So, yeah. and, and Christina, before I let you go, um, sure. talk a little bit about, you know, how what healthcare systems have done. How has that been effective from what you have seen in your experience? You know, I think that with healthcare systems establishing, you know, really well-developed um, sustainable workflows, is really good. Um, you know, we, we've seen that, you know, big health systems have a centralized kind of credentialing um, department um, or process. And I think where, you know, that they're able to apply that to maybe multiple facilities. So having that centralized credentialing is something that is really successful big, for big health networks. Um, where we've seen that they have failed is not having an established process or a well-documented process or um, resources that can take some of the, they may, may have staffing issues. And so I'm um, not having that process documented where you can easily hand that process over to somebody else. And so that's where we see there's a lot of pitfalls in big organizations because maybe the right hand doesn't know what the left hand's doing. And then when somebody retires then or leaves the organization, they're not able to transition that very easily. So that's where the gaps are being created. Um, there's questions coming in to, you know, are we meeting these regulatory requirements? If we get audited by joint commission, are we going to pass? Are we going to fail? And so, again, having a sustainable process and maybe a partner in that process can help streamline and keep that process flowing as staff changes or as, you know, processes change or requirements change. And having an experienced, trained, knowledgeable staff to understand what those changes are. That's a good question. I, that's, I just want to expand on that just for a second because Christina has 
like such a great perspective. She knows all the stuff that's going on. But when I have conversations with individuals, when I'm out in the field and we're talking about this type of process and these types of services, they absolutely um, have the need to have those workflow processes and they do have workforce shortages. And that's where a lot of these gaps do come up. So Christina makes an excellent point there. You've got, um, you know, for whatever reason, a turnover of staff, and then now you've got to start from scratch. And so they don't know what they don't know. And by the time they're getting that learning curve up and going, there's precious time lost in that in that whole process. So just having those conversations, folks are very excited to hear that there's uh, an opportunity, a, a, a vendor, or someone out there that can help them as needed throughout that gap and even come alongside and help them as they're working through to train someone else in that role. And, and that brings up a, a really good point. And, and part of my next question, Bernadette, is that, you know, what's at stake for some of these healthcare organizations if the credentialing process goes wrong or if it's mishandled? You know, what if it takes too long? And we're talking about some of like the staffing shortages. And, you know, we know that some of those processes could take longer than others. So with this built on top of that, how how what are the pressures that are built around this and those things again that can that can go wrong with the credentialing process and what do hospitals do then? Well, some of the things that I hear when I'm out there is um, the the worry that they're going to lose this provider to another system if that other system is uh, you know more efficient in getting them the information they need. Um, also, revenue it, there could be a revenue issue. Uh, you're not going to hire this. This provider, you're paying them, but they're not able to see patients, and so um, all that information is, you know, it just delays and it backlogs. But Erica, how would you say that perspective is in the health system? I think the biggest, biggest risk is that you don't credential properly, and you end up with somebody who um, is committing malpractice issues all over the place, like whether it be some sort of financial fraud or. Um, is not who they said they were. And so um, Christina made us all watch the show, Dr. Death. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I was referring to. I was like, oh my God. Because because, um, that's, you know, of course, almost never happens. And you sure don't want to be the hospital that it happens to where you end up with a, a provider who didn't, was not upfront about their background or suits that were against them. And Um, So that's the worst case scenario. Every hospital wants to make sure at a minimum patients are safe in their environment. Um, And then the the rest of the items that Bernadette brought up are are certainly more frequent um, and also important. And I think two last resources, you know, I mean, I think we've had conversations with, with CEOs where, you know, they're vetting a provider, they're really interested in a provider and a provider comes in. You know, they go through a lot of onboarding efforts, getting, you know, a family to come out to interview with the schools and, you know, with you know, interviewing with the staff and making sure that the family is going to be happy transitioning into this new facility, new town, you know, new schools, new work environment. Um, and then finding out that the provider has red flags. And so we've seen that um, where, you know, they're doing that vetting up front, but not checking um, certain, you know, elements before they start that vetting process, which would save them a lot of time, a lot of money, um, and where they can actually focus on a provider, onboarding a provider that would, you know, be qualified and and fit their needs. You know, we all do 
our own due diligence before we go see a physician normally, right? Um, We want to be educated about who we see and what we do. But this is, you know, this is way more background information than what the typical consumer could find out. Um, and, And we want those processes in place because we don't want to see someone who is not who they say they are, who maybe has had some malpractice issues in the past, somehow went to another state and was still licensed in that state. You know, so I think that that's that's one of the things that we have to think through this. It's providing really, and Erica, I think you kind of like said this or or an iteration of this. It's it's like a, a little bit of an insurance type program to say, I've checked this person out to the best of my ability and they seem like a pretty much, you know, a stand-up doctor, right? No red flag. So I think that that's having um, having that piece along with just hiring a good doctor. You know, they've, they've had good outcomes or whatever. That's great that they've had good outcomes, but they may be a terrible person. You know, you hate to say that, but sometimes it happens. And, you know, we have seen that in the movies and we have seen that on Netflix. Bernadette, can you explain what provider enrollment is, a little bit about the process, and then what is the relationship to the provider credentialing process? The provider enrollment is really the process of requesting participation um, in health plans for for the providers so that they can become a part of the network and that facility can bill for and be reimbursed for services that uh, that provider provides to patients. So it really gives us that revenue source and it allows us to get that the income for the, for the services that they're providing. So part of the process is submitting applications and credentials documents. And I think that's why we love um, and, and we advertise it's great to have one and the other and it's peanut butter and jelly because if you've already got the credentials verification services, we've got a lot of that information as lead lead up to. So it, it, it's on the back end for provider enrollment, we don't have to gather as much of, of that information. We've already got it in the system. And this is helpful for the turnaround time and, and the efficiency of how long it will take, which we'll talk about in a moment. But it's really just getting those documents, making sure that we meet the requirements for the different contracted insurance carriers. And then HSC really is developing that database and that workflow that will help streamline and really automate that process and making sure that, that the database is also updated and it's got all the information. Now, that's a really broad overview. And I know Erica can really kind of streamline it a little bit more to talk about how that impacts health. Yeah, sure. And so if if you're a hospital or a health system or even a large provider practice, um, just the same way that a medical staff office is giving their brand endorsement, their stamp of approval to a provider joining your medical staff, you're trying to get the same thing out of a health plan. So an insurance carrier is saying, yes, we have vetted these providers that are in our provider directory that are part of our network. They meet the qualifications they need to, to be part of this insurance network. So they got got our stamp of approval. Um, Each one is a little bit different, each insurance carrier. 
Um, they have some underlying regulatory requirements, just as hospitals do, and then they uh, might layer on different things that are required to be part of their network. Um, there's concepts like network adequacy and things like that, that um, those carriers are always cognizant of. We mostly work for hospitals and large practices, though, where contracts are in place and you're adding that provider to your contract so you can get reimbursed for their care, just like Bernadette said. And then, you know, as usual, the devil's in the details, and that's where Christina's team's experience comes into play. Right. So, you know, getting these providers enrolled into the health plan, um, it's the whole process is, you know, it's, it's again, it, there's a lot of different layers to the provider enrollment process. And really where it begins is the data gathering. And so that's where the data gathering really ties together with credentials verification. So for privileging, you know, we're able to take a lot of that information and apply it to provider enrollment, as um, Bernadette had mentioned. And so um, developing those workflows, working together with the health plans and developing workflows um, requirements with each health plan, as Erica mentioned, there's a lot of different health plans with a lot of different requirements. Um, they're typically applying NCQA as their regulatory requirement, but then they also have um, requirements above and beyond um, the basic regulatory requirements. And so a lot of those can tie to the network adequacy for provider directory requirements. Um, and they're also looking for maybe, um, you know, population where the population may um, have um, be, you know, May, may not have as many specialties in that area. They may be looking at different specialties and rural healthcare areas where they need to pull in a provider or they may be you know, top heavy on some of the specialties. And so um, looking at that and considering that information, gathering that information upfront um, and proactively identifying what is needed for provider enrollment. Um, health, you know, healthcare, um, healthcare insurance companies, um, the carriers, their requirements are always changing. And so making sure that you have that information up front, you're not creating gaps in those processes and applying that information to each submission, which, you know, the submission um, methods are very different. It could be online, it could be an application, it can be a phone call. And so knowing, you know, what that process looks like. Um, and then not just, I think the revenue piece is really important, but also patient access is something that, you know, I and my team also consider when we're working with these health plans and, and our customers is patient access, because a lot of times we're hearing, you know, especially in the rural, rural healthcare areas, um, that it's hitting the patients out of network benefits. And so that, you know, we want to avoid that as well and make sure that those patients have access to providers. And it's not just, you know, impacting revenue for the facility, which is really important to us as well, but patient access. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, a little bit, Bernadette, about some of the challenges. What, what are some additional challenges of provider enrollment? I, I can take that one. So, um, you know, just to add to what Bernadette already shared um, the and Christina shared, just the fact that the requirements are changing from the health plan so often, there again, it's a very important task. If done infrequently, how is the person in either your financial revenue cycle area or in your medical staff office area, whoever is doing that work for you, how are they supposed to keep up with what's required? And um, so that is a task we take on um, because it's near impossible. You figure most states have several that are their main insurers, mm -hmm. um, but then hundreds of others because they take care of visitors or people who retired in one state and moved to another one. You know, there's there's so many iterations. So I think that's one of the biggest challenges. The second challenge is even probably unintentionally for the most part, let's give those carriers some credit, 
and the process tends to lag. And even when there's an approval and it's obvious that that provider should be part of their network and part of the contract, they've got to do their internal processes. And then they have to then add that provider to their own contracting systems so that their their payments work correctly. Um, Some do a great job of saying, okay, even though that time from approval to when that provider's entered into our system has taken a while, we're going to retroactively reimburse. And some are playing a little bit of a of a game, I'd say, um, in saying, oh, no, it doesn't count until they're in our system. And that takes more weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, And meanwhile, (laughs) patients need to access care. And so those hospitals want to get those providers, you know, working and seeing patients. Absolutely. Absolutely. Christina, what do you see as challenges? Um, I think that you kind of, you know, you, you hit it on the head, Erica. I think that some health plans are not motivated to get these providers enrolled very timely because it obviously impacts the claims that they have to pay. And so I think that a lot of the challenges that we see, you know, with my team and, you know, I've, I personally have made enrollment submissions myself and seeing that, you know, we're working, if you're working with maybe like a big national carrier, maybe, and I'm, I don't want to mention any names of any specific carriers, but you're working with different representatives. And so you're receiving um, maybe different information each time you call. So you're, you know, you're calling to maybe get information from a carrier. And the next time you call, you get, uh, you know, completely different information. And so that's a lot of, you know, what we're seeing as a barrier with a lot of the health plans that we're working with is different information from different representatives. And so that's why, you know, we track information, we track conversations that we have, um, which makes, you know, that process a little bit more, you know, it, it's it's documented for us so we can go back and re- reference that information. But I think, you know, other challenges is, you know, just the changing requirements, as we mentioned. And so making sure that we have that information documented, the workflows documented, identified, and establishing those relationships with those payers is really important. Erica, I think, uh, do you have something else to add to that? Just, just that another challenge we see is, especially if you um, don't have a lot of employee providers or you're working with your managed care entities infrequently, um, that space is so complex. And so insurance carriers have different networks for different plans and they've named things differently and they might have a Medicare product or two, an exchange product, a Medicaid product and three different commercial products. Um, And I think one other challenge is keeping up with that. So we find some hospitals that think they have a contract with everyone. It certainly feels like it to them because negotiations can be tough, right? Um, And then they come to find out that, oops, they only have one Blue Cross product or they only have two out of three of the United products in their area. Um, And so that's another, uh, another challenge that we help with. Right. And I think too, you know, we're we're dealing with challenges with health plans, but not just um, health plans, but we're also dealing with challenges with the providers. And so we know that providers' priority is patient care as it should be, but paperwork is still necessary. So trying to get the information that we need for those enrollment activities could be difficult for some of the medical staff offices and for maybe a vendor as well, because you know, we're looking for specific information that ties to the provider's credentialing information that the payer may be asking for additional information. So once they're employed, it's a little bit more difficult to get that information from them because they feel like the process is already done. But so sometimes, you know, we're dealing with those barriers, not just tied to the payers, but to the providers as well. 
We're, we're working on our telepathy, but we aren't here yet. <laughs> so close. I know, because the crystal ball is not working either, right? <laughs> so let's move on to best practices. Um, now that we've explored some of the potential problems that healthcare organizations may face um, regarding the credentialing and the enrollment processes, let's let's talk about some of the best practices um, with our membership. Um, well, so on the credentialing side, what are some of the best practices for um, healthcare organizations? So like, what are some of the do's and don'ts of, of credential verification? Bernadette, I'll start with you. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take the track everything, track everything, get a good solid uh, workflow and process, um, and and track it all, because um, you're never gonna you're, you're not gonna know when you're gonna need to refer back to that. And it's so important um, as you go through the process. Um, but that would be the best practice from what I've learned and what I hear and um, just working with Christina and, and learning from her and the team, tracking is huge. I I think the review of your bylaws, just thinking strategically, um, often people have added in things over the years or maybe they had some sort of incident at their hospital 15 years ago and they decided to add a bunch of rules. Um, it's really important to go back and look at what does joint commission require? What do you truly do? And make your bylaws reflect what's necessary. And don't pile on a bunch of extra stuff because it ends up just being things you don't do or you're taking too long in your process. You, know, you could have tiered your review so that if a flag comes up, you have more to do. But if you ask so many questions up front... Um, or you eliminate some of the people unnecessarily that might be applying to work for your facility for, you know, whatever reason, perhaps they went through a bout of depression or something, and you're asking a million questions about if they've ever been treated for depression. You know, you got to really think through those things um, and make sure that your bylaws are really necessary to produce a quality medical staff. Yeah. I agree with Erica. You know, I think doing a health check of your bylaws is really important because what may have been applicable 10 years ago could have changed, you know, to, you know, to current. So we do see that regulatory requirements do change and you want your bylaws to fall in line with the regulatory requirements. You may want to apply, you know, maybe some specific, you know, facility specific requirements, but going above and beyond really does create delays and bottlenecks in the process. Um, I think another uh, best practice recommendation would be not to cut corners. And I feel like a lot of times because of the pressures to get providers onto the medical staff, um, some some people may feel like, well, we really don't need this. Or, you know, we may want to consider, you know, reconsider maybe asking this question. But again, making that sure that you're doing your due diligence and doing all the, the required checks to make sure that, again, these providers are qualified and competent to provide services to your patients is really important because you want to avoid liability issues for your facilities. So making sure that you're not cutting corners. Um, I think that a lot of times what we're seeing now, especially um, with, um, I, you know, as I mentioned, we do a partner with New Mexico Medical Board is staff completing applications on behalf of the providers. And I mean, I, where I came from, you know, private practice where I did the provider's application, but I was really familiar with his credentials. And so when you're completing a credentials application for a provider that you may not be familiar with, 
you could potentially be creating gaps in that information or providing wrong information, which could cause delays. And so making sure that the provider is the source of truth, you know, getting that information directly from the provider. Um, if you're not familiar with their, you know, their credentialing information, because that's where we tend to st start seeing a lot of the delay or gaps in credentialing information. Um, and just provide, you know, provider education. Provider education is really important for the providers to understand the importance of credentialing. The providers, you know, can tend to feel like, you know, I've already gotten my license. I've already done this. I've already done it. Why do I need to do this again? And especially when we're looking at recredentialing, um, a lot can happen in two years. And so making sure the providers realize the importance of the credentials verification process and educating and partnering with those providers to make sure that, you know, it's a lot of paperwork. It could be a lot of paperwork and identifying, you know, streamlining processes for these providers, creating efficiencies maybe. But again, having those conversations with the providers and letting them know how critical it is to make sure that we have this information. You know, and I and I wanted to go back to best practices. You know, I think that communication is really important. So, you know, we talked about communication with the providers. But if you're talking about, and we've seen this with some of our hospitals where HR onboarding may not communicate with medical staff, not a provider has been onboarded. And so medical staff finds out maybe three months later, oh, oops, this provider has been working here. They need to be credentialed. Um, and now they need to be enrolled. And so again, Communication between the different departments, the onboarding process is really important. We always talk about credentialing. We talk about provider enrollment, but we tend not to focus on the onboarding process as much as we should. And medical staff offices should because the onboarding process is what sets the stage for a successful credentialing process and a successful provider enrollment process. So communication within the facility to make sure that everybody's on the same page, aware of the providers that are being onboarded and vetted. That way they're prepared to begin the, the credentials verification process for privileging. That's a great segue into talking about some of the best practices for provider enrollment. What are some of the best practices that you have seen regarding provider enrollment? So I, I think that there are so many payers out there that most important because provider enrollment is key to your revenue cycle is focus on the biggest ones. So make sure that you have a good priority list of who you want to um, have an interaction with, understand the workflow for, or outsource to somebody like us, um, because it's not something you want to screw up for a big, huge payer that's Im important for part of your payer mix. And so that's where I'd say to start is focus your attention on, on the big ones. Right. Right. Working with them, I mean, you're looking at your high volume payers to make sure that you're getting those payers enrolled with your or the providers enrolled with those payers. Um, that way you're you're hitting the most critical and high volume um, population. Um, also, I think that, um, you know, I think Bernadette talked about this earlier, tracking everything and making sure that you're tracking all activity and documenting all activity. Um, you're, you're, there's so many dates and so much information that's related to provider enrollment um, that's important for tracking purposes. You're looking at different dates, you know, being familiar with effective dates, start dates, higher dates. There's so many di different dates involved, but tracking all of that information and making sure that you have those, those developed workflows. The workflows, having a developed workflow checklist, making sure that gaps are not being created. Again, and, I, and this is what we see, we tend to see with a lot of provider enrollment activities with facilities where they may have staffing changes um, and those gaps are being created because nothing's documented. 
Um, so they don't have a process to refer back to, to say, okay, this is what we do with this particular payer. This is what we do with this particular payer. And so again, making sure that those workflows and everything is tracked and documented. Well, you know who does document and track all those workflows? We do. <laughs> <laughs> so if that sounds like something for a, a hospital where they just don't have the team or the time, you know, that's the perfect reason that you use an entity like us that does this all day. Um, I think also one way to get that focus, if you're in the revenue cycle area or if you're in the medical staff office and you can't get attention on the fact that like this is hard work and it's really important for the rest of the downstream that happens when you hire a provider, think about how much is getting written off because the provider is hired, their salary is getting paid. And they're either not doing any work or if they are doing work, it's not getting reimbursed. Um, a lot of hospitals, even our smaller hospitals are hiring, you know, a general surgeon or an orthopedic surgeon even. Think how much you're paying those individuals to either not get reimbursed or just to sit there and not see patients. And, and that will help focus your organization on saying, okay, we do need to find a partner or we do need to focus on this. Well, speaking of partners, let, let's talk about that. So um, as an NCQA certified CVO, Hospital Services Corporation has expertise, right? And credentials verification, um, as well as provider enrollment. But let's talk about, let's break it down again um, into credentials verification. So tell me a little bit more about your credentialing services that are offered at HSC, um, and then what does your process look like and what makes it unique from maybe some other companies that are out there? I'll, I'll tell you from, from my perspective. We, Erica and Christina are very good with the details and, and they'll know um, a lot of the, the more um, ingrained. But I'm going to tell you from a business relationship perspective why I think this is important um, and the work that we do is important. Uh, our organization we're a medium-sized organization, and I personally know every single individual on the staff readiness team, Christina's team, who actually does this work. And um, they are committed to the work that they do. And they have been here for quite some time. I know a lot of them and have for a long time, and they really are invested in ensuring that they can provide the patient access, as Christina mentioned before, so that these communities have access to those specialists and those providers that can help them get well or see and meet their needs. Um, I think that is super important um, because when we're talking about our product or our us as a vendor versus someone else or even internally, um, I can tell you that these folks really are committed to the work that they do. And the, one of the reasons I know that is because it, as part of my job prior to this role, I was able to do customer satisfaction surveys. And, and one of the things we do is we really, we give a survey out to these customers and we ask them, how are we doing? What, how are we doing with the job? What are the things you like about us? And Christina's team over and over and over again continues to score very, very high with employee, with uh, customer satisfaction. So to me, it's that piece that I think um, is is the important part of the credentialing is knowing that the people that you are using or relying on to do this important work uh, are really committed to it. 
but Erica, Christina, feel free to actually get into the details. And I may not have even answered your question, Jody, but I, 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 I was passionate about that. No, you did. You did. You've got it, You've got it Bernadette. I agree. Um, so uh, there again, when you have important work that's done infrequently or on top of a whole lot of other stuff, you want people who are experienced and do it all day long. So on my second day of working at Hospital Services Corporation, we had our NCQA survey for our team, and they said that they could not compliment us more highly that Christina's team had, quote unquote, perfect files, and they had never, this surveyor had never seen that before. Um, So that's just a testament to a team that does know how to do details and do them very well. And the combination of having service people that are the people that Bernadette mentioned and the tools that they need to automate some pieces so that everything runs smoothly and consistently and most importantly, quickly. Right. Thank you, Erica, for the compliment. She, um, you know, we we do pride ourselves on the quality of our work. We we and I think what sets us apart from maybe some of our competitors or other vendors is, you know, we a lot of what we see is other vendors may be a software, a software essentially. So you're you're purchasing a software, a platform, and because we are a CBO, we're a full service CBO where we do provide that service, the credentials and primary source verification services. Um, but we also provide services where we're reviewing the information for completeness, for accuracy, which a software can't do. And so we're looking at that information again with our experienced, knowledgeable staff. We're familiar with those regulatory requirements. We're a resource to our customers. And so we partner with our facilities, not just to provide a service, but we also partner with them to provide resources, guidance. Um, you know, they're looking for, you know, they may have a question about a regulatory requirement. We provide them with, you know, the information that we have and, and the knowledge that we know to provide them with that support. And so we've had a lot of our customers, you know, come out and say, HSCs, my, my, my team, they're my staff, you know, so they look at us as part of their support system as well, and not just a platform. And so I think that's something that does set us aside from a lot of our, you know, other vendors is that we provide that, that, that service, that knowledge, that experience, those efficiencies that Erica talked about. So we do have automation built into our system, but it's not just a platform, it's a service. That's great to know too, because, you know, a lot of people will say that it's, you know, it's AI. AI has been built into everything. No, no human has to touch this. No human has to do anything with it. But, you know, sometimes that that does lead to some errors when when you have it's just completely AI. Um, so I, I think that that is a, a key um, differentiator probably with, with y'all compared to a lot of companies that could be, that are out there is that their, their lead is going to be, we have the AI functions, that artificial intelligence. And uh, sometimes you just need that personal touch. For and us, it's not the, it's not artificial intelligence. It's just intelligence. <laughs> it's just intelligence. That's right. I love it. I love it. So, uh, you know, you talked about a little bit about the, some of the key features uh, and the service and how that that sets you apart. Is there anything else that maybe kind of be would be uh, other than the intelligence piece of it mm-hmm. that that really sets HSC apart from the environment? The fact that we are owned by a hospital association, we are hospital focused all day long, and the whole mission of our entire organization is to make things 
more efficient and less expensive. End of day, that's it. We're not here just to, you know, find some great service to get, you know, make the company rich. We're here to find something that's maybe a little too expensive that we can do as well or better and make it more cost effective. And so that I think is a a big answer. Our pricing structure is such that we can come in and back up a medical staff office and partner alongside them. Um, It's very easy for us to just offload some files and do some of the work. And usually people are impressed with us that they start sending us all their files. Um, But, you know, we're really here as a hospital company helping hospitals. Right. And I think, you know, Erica, you touched on a good point there because we offer custom solutions. We're not a one size fits all type organization. So we do meet with our customers to identify what their specific needs are. So we're able to customize our services to help come alongside and partner with them. So we're not providing services that they may be, you know, they can, they can, you know, tasks that they can complete themselves. We look at the need and partner with them so they can be successful and their credentials verification process or their provider enrollment process or both. And so it really is custom customizable. And we we really do want to meet their needs based on their specific needs and not just a, a you know a, a general, this is what we provide and this is all we provide. Right. Yeah. And I can say that um, you know, having these conversations with folks, and I bring that up a lot, that's because my job is to make friends and have <laughs> good, meaningful conversations with individuals to see what they're what 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 they're struggling with or you know what the complexities they have but I will say that we just you know a, a previous customer of ours reached back out to us because they had some changes they went with a vendor um, that was a software and they thought oh this is going to be great it's, we're going to save so much money and they ended up spending so much more in the back end and so She's uh, reaching back out to us to get back on our services. And, you know, we were just grateful, obviously. But, but you know, I did ask her and she said, you know, it, it doesn't, nothing beats the personal touch. Nothing beats the availability of being able to pick up the phone or I am someone or email and get a response or be able to know that you're talking with somebody and you don't have to wait or it doesn't go out to this black hole somewhere where you never know if you're going to somebody's going to see your need because to them it's real it's immediate and they have that need right away and they need it addressed immediately um, and so that's where we do the great work that Christina is talking about and Erica is talking about that we have those intelligence we have the people on the ground that are available and ready for them when they need it and if so, you don't want to talk to anybody we also have portals <laughs> you can go at any time and see the progress on your files without having to call a human if you don't want Yes, if you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't want is there a long drawn out it's okay. We've got the automation. There are days where you just don't want to talk to anybody. That's right. Sometimes you just want an anonymous experience and that's, that's right. okay too. We can provide that. We all have those days. It's okay. One more thing. Let's talk a little bit about the provider enrollment side um, and the services that you're able to offer. Your process and just a few key features. Okay. So our provider enrollment services, I think what sets us aside from um, a lot of different platforms or vendors is, you know, we have, again, established relationships with payers. We have established workflows. We work with the payers to identify any possible changes 
And we dedicate our time to regular follow-up with the payers. So we're not just making those submissions. And I think that's where a lot of um, maybe medical staff or revenue cycle departments may have uh, maybe barriers to that because they may not have the resources to conduct that regular follow-up with those payers to make sure that those enrollments are processing timely and that gaps, again, are not being created in the enrollment process. And what we do and what sets us aside from a lot of um, different platforms or approaches is we, again, we do the data collection up front. And so we're reviewing the information to make sure that all of the information is up to date, it's accurate, it's complete. Uh, we're not making submissions with incomplete information, which could potentially, you know, cause a delay in that enrollment process and conducting that regular follow-up and communication with our customers. So we, we, we believe in full transparency with our customers, and I think that they appreciate that. So we're not just providing them with the information that we think that they want or, you know, that's going to be beneficial to us. You know, we're documenting, we're providing them information if there's barriers with payers or bar barriers with providers, any communication barriers, or maybe we identify gaps in contracts. And so, you know, we provide specialized services on top of our provider enrollment activity where we're able to partner with facilities to conduct an audit of their existing providers with their contracted payers. And we oftentimes identify gaps in enrollments and got gaps in contracting. So not just with the provider enrollment, but with the contracts themselves. And so um, having that experienced, dedicated staff where we can come along and partner with those um, those departments, you know, the revenue cycle, medical staff, and they can focus their, their efforts on maybe something that is not related to those least, you know, least desirable kind of activities such as provider enrollment. We can, we also track all of our interactions, just like we are advising everyone else to do, track everything. But in doing so, we're able to see how payers compete with each other. How well are they turning around an approved file and in how many days? So we keep track of that for every insurance carrier we work with. And so at any given time, we can tell you we won't tell you in this podcast, but <laughs> we can tell you who's doing the best and who's doing the worst. And, you know, right, right. Some, need, some need help. <laughs> yes. That, I mean, and that helps for advocacy efforts. And so that also touches on something else that, you know, we advocate on behalf of our facilities. And so we will work with, you know, payers and say, listen, you're not, you know, as Eric, had, you know, mentioned, you're not performing that well. You know, what can we do to help streamline this process? What can we do to help get these providers, you know, credential a little bit more timely? And, you know, that really, that brings up a great point um, because, you know, that's information we can feed directly to um, our lobbyists, we can feed to our general assembly to say, this is the reality. This is, you, you want some data? Here's the data. Mm -hmm. We we know how, uh, how long it takes. We know who's kind of dragging their feet. And this is why things aren't getting paid or, you know, things are being sent to, to collections or whatever, because, you know, all, all of these different things. So I think that that's a great point that you bring up and how things are so interconnected. One more question regarding uh, provider en enrollment, and this is a this is a really key one. So, and I think Erica touched on this a little bit, but you know, what's the return on investment? What does that look like when a hospital comes to say, "I want to work with HSC"? So, in thinking of return on investment, especially if you're the CFO at a hospital or you're and the medical staff office saying, hey, you guys, enrollment into insurance carriers is a whole different concept. We need some help. Here's a few things to think about. 
Um, looking at Medscape's 2021 report on physician salaries, if you're a hospital who has hired an orthopedic physician and you're waiting around for the provider enrollment insurance carrier process to happen, you're paying $9,800 a week. Wow. Now, if you translated that to average reimbursement of a high volume hospital's DRG for say, like me, arth arthroscopies, for example, say that they're 11,000 bucks reimbursement and even if you're just sort of medium filling your schedule, that's $88,000 a week that you are just not getting paid right? for somebody you hired. And so, you know, every hospital doesn't necessarily have employed orthopedic surgeons. Take a hospitalist, you know, just for medical, um, a medical DRG, $4,800 a week you might be paying a hospitalist and take a high volume case like a complicated ulcer. There goes five thousand bucks a case, or forty thousand dollars a week. You know, if you're not, if you don't have providers that are in your health plan, and um, of course, there's general surgeons, there's gynecologists. You know, your OBGYNs. Everyone needs to have the gynecological surgeries to support having somebody who can deliver babies as well. As we all know, you know, there's six thousand bucks a week you're paying somebody if you can't get them reimbursed because they're not enrolled in health plans or that's $72,000 a week or $9,000 a case in surgeries. So we like to help hospitals think of it that way um, when they're trying to put a focus on where they put resources or where they consider outsourcing. That's, uh, that's some really great information, Erica. So to wrap it up, and this has been such great conversation, I want to thank you so much, ladies, for, for being a part of this. Is there anything else that maybe our listeners need to know that we haven't covered that I haven't asked you? Um, this is kind of like that that last chance, whether it's just in general about um, credentialing or enrollment, provider enrollment, or something in general about HSC. I, I think generally that hospitals want to keep things contained in their walls. And that is good and important because you're trying to build an esprit de corps, just like every other company. We really pride ourselves on coming alongside who you have in place and who you're trying to get to work with you. We're not here to replace anybody. We're not here to... Um, cause any issues where you're just throwing something over a wall and not worrying about it. We're really here to, to partner with your team. I agree with that, Erica. You have my stamp of approval on that <laughs> one. <laughs> and that's why we're called strategic partners. <laughs> that's right. Thanks for having us, Cody. Thank you so much again. And uh, we'll look forward to talking with you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of Solutions Insider brought to you by NCHA Strategic Partners and co-produced by Healthcare Experience Foundation. If you want to learn more about our solutions, please visit ncha.org slash strategic dash partner.